welcome. Today, we will be talking with Dr. Ryan Maves on the topic of addressing vaccine hesitancy. Dr. Maves is a professor of medicine and anesthesiology at the Wake Forest School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where he serves as a faculty intensivist and infectious disease specialist. In addition to his many other accomplishments, he also served at the Naval Medical Research um, Unit in Lima, Peru, where he led studies in antimicrobial resistance and vaccine development. And he is the chair of the CHEST COVID-19 Task Force, the incoming chair of the Disaster Response and Global Health Section, and serves on the CHEST Scientific Program Committee. We are very lucky to have him with us today. So thank you so much for joining with us, Dr. Maves. Oh gosh, Dr. Winter, thank you so much for the invitation. I, 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 I hear the I hear my my biography, and I I wonder who this strange person is that people <laughs> describe. I'm uh, just happy to be here. Great. So to get us started, we've all encountered vaccine hesitancy in our careers, yeah. but healthcare providers seem to be experiencing a whole new level of it with these COVID nineteen vaccines. And many in the healthcare community are extremely frustrated by this reluctance of people to get vaccinated. Why do you think that vaccine hesitancy is so upsetting to healthcare providers, especially in this setting of the current pandemic? Yeah, why is it upsetting to us? Um, it is uniquely upsetting. You know, I, I'm a practicing infectious disease doctor, and, and obviously, vaccination is a fairly big part of my practice, and that's much like pulmonologists. We have no small amount of overlap in the patients we see. And, you know, vaccine hesitancy has always been with us, but in terms of what's different now, in part of it, it's because the people who are classically vaccine hesitant have changed, right? There was a, a review, and I need to find the reference for this, but uh, uh, sociologists looking at what groups were, were previously not vaccine hesitant. And in 2016, there were some surveys looking at uh, specifically, we'll say white evangelicals who are one of the most pro-vaccine groups out there in 2016. And in surveys were found to be very much in favor of like MMR and varicella vaccines in school, for example, as requirements. And that's changed now. You know, uh, vaccine hesitancy used to be, or to some extent, I mean, to some extent it still is, but used to be a feature we would see in you know, I grew up in, in the Pacific Northwest, and we would have uh, clusters, if you will, of um, sort of politically left-leaning, upper-middle-class folks who would shy away from vaccination. You can think of them sort of, uh, you know, influenced in part by celebrity culture to some extent. And that's all changed with the pandemic. Some of it, I think, is hardening of existing political lines uh, as a result of the pandemic. Some of it is I think some perhaps perhaps misguided but legitimately like understandable hesitancy about new scientific innovations. Uh, and and some of it I think is that for some of some of our people, vaccine hesitancy for COVID has become part of their identity. And that becomes a very hard nut to crack in clinic where when someone's opposition to COVID prevention measures, be the, be that masking, be that social distancing, be that vaccination. When that, when that gets incorporated into who you are um, and you have perhaps some family or social pressure to stay in that group, that's, that's hard for a doctor or other clinicians to, to crack through. And 
I'm optimistic that in the long haul we'll do it as some of these tensions dissipate over time, I hope. Uh, we can see that in the impacts of some of these vaccine mandates, uh, both from private employers, uh, many health systems, mine, for example, I assume yours is similar. Uh, I don't know that, but I assume. And, um, and now, of course, some from state and federal governments um, that we are seeing vaccine rates go up or sort of chip, chip, chipping away at this hesitancy. But yeah, this is, I don't want to say it's unique, um, but it is different. It is a change. So is there anything that you can tell us about the history of vaccine hesitancy and this anti-vax movement? Oh, wow. I mean, that is a long, long discussion, but I, I think it may make you feel better about this moment in our history if you if you if we realize that this is not the first time it happens you can actually you can google this you can google in the library of congress there is a scanned form of george washington's order uh for the variolation variolation is a predecessor of vaccination for the variolation against smallpox of uh, the continental army during the revolutionary war now variolation was the thing that came before vaccination the idea was you would take uh, smallpox lesions from a patient to, and then you would use that to kind of do a controlled infection, a controlled inoculation of a person with the hope you would give them very mild smallpox from which they would recover and then they would be immune going forward. Um, it was riskier than vaccination, obviously, because you're actually giving people smallpox, but, um, but it did reduce risk and it did control a smallpox outbreak in the Continental Army. But there was a, this is being recorded for a professional setting, so I'll say there was a huge kerfuffle about this and uh, not the word I always use in describing this, but, uh, but these controversies, uh, you know, are the very beginning of the history of immunization, let's say. Um, probably a lot of the contemporary um, anti-vax movement circles around a gentleman named Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who was a, a British gastroenterologist who published data that, that attempted to link the MMR vaccine to autism. Uh, now that research was subsequently discredited and his license to practice medicine uh, withdrawn by, by British health authorities. Um, but that kind of laid some of the groundwork for that. And actually, you know, anti-vax tendencies, if you will, pre-COVID were actually even a bigger problem in the UK and Western Europe uh, than they were in the US. Now we are kind of neck and neck, unfortunately. Um, after a slow start, a slower start than we did to vaccination uh, against COVID in, in Europe, they picked up and then kind of passed us, although we're pretty close, depending on what country you look at. Um, Portugal, for example, basically ran out of adults to vaccinate. They vaccinated everybody. Uh, so there are some, some remarkable accomplishments in Western Europe uh, that we should emulate. But um, yeah, but the anti-vax movement in and of itself is not a new thing. It's just more kind of who's in it is different. And what do you happen to know about Portugal's need for immigrant doctors? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Portugal twice. It is a beautiful country. Uh, Lisbon is a cool town. I highly recommend visiting it when you can. I'll add it to the list. <laughs> so there is obviously a lot of circulating inaccuracies regarding the yeah. risk and the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccine. What do you think has led to this dumpster fire of disinformation? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it goes back to, well, and again, I, necessary caveats apply. I am a, a practicing physician. I am not a, 
uh, I'm not much of a student of sociology or of uh, political science, but my impression, and take it for what it's worth, is that, again, some of it is this uh, linkage of resistance to pandemic prevention initiatives <clears throat> with politics and identity. I suspect that's part of it. And when you have that linkage, one selectively cherry picks information uh, to do it. I do think one thing that is different about the pandemic is that, you know, there've always been these debates within the biomedical community, within the scientific community about the efficacy of a certain intervention, you know, for even when say the HPV vaccine uh, against human papillomavirus, which is a great public health triumph and has the potential to eliminate cervical cancer and other HPV associated malignancies potentially in our careers or in our lifetimes, if broadly adopted. Uh, there were debates in, about, should we vaccinate all people against it? Is there, you know, should every, should boys be vaccinated? Should only women be vaccinated? Should only young girls, should we wait until sexual activity? Are we encouraging inappropriate sexual activity? What is inappropriate sexual activity, et cetera, et cetera, um, about the HPV vaccine. But a lot of those debates took place within us, right? Whereas with COVID, debates about like therapeutic efficacy of different interventions are playing out in the press in real time. And our internal discussions are now everywhere, right? You can, you can read to see what, you know, this expert or that expert thinks. And, and while certainly transparency on the whole is a good thing, I think it does have an effect on people who are, you know, perhaps less scientifically literate. And, uh, and that becomes a challenge for public education, not like the public education system per se, but our ability to educate the public, our patients, our neighbors, our families and such. Um, so that's probably part of it. But what we see are, for example, you remember, you know, this was several months ago, which may as well be like archaeology in COVID times, but um, about the, the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So these two vaccines are relatively similar in design. They're both uh, replication incompetent adenovirus vectors. Uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses a human adenovirus. The AstraZeneca vaccine uses a chimpanzee adenovirus. Uh, but they're pretty similar concepts, right? And then they're each modified to, to express the, uh, the coronavirus spike protein. And so there is a, a risk of pathologic thrombosis in them. The most feared one is, of course, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Now, I have seen more cerebral venous sinus thrombosis because of COVID uh, than I have seen due to the COVID vaccine. In fact, I haven't seen any due to the due to either of those vaccines. Admittedly, those vaccines are not particularly widespread in use uh, in the United States. There's more AstraZeneca use overseas. Um, but so when people read about that risk in the paper, what they see is you get this vaccine and you have a risk of getting a pathologic blood clot in your brain, right? Now, if you look at the actual numbers, the actual risk, the risk of dying in a car accident for a typical resident of the United States every year is 50 times greater than your risk of getting a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis from the AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson vaccine, right? Not even dying of it, just getting it, right? So, but conveying that risk, people are not necessarily that good at conveying risk and understanding those risks. Not that we, People understand it, but 
the risk of dying in a car accident is sort of baked into our background risk profile of living in society, right? Whereas the decision to receive a given vaccine is a conscious decision. Uh, it's not necessarily a thing that we've baked into our daily lives. And, and conveying that sense of risk um, becomes hard, it becomes hard. And then I think people lose sight of those relative risks, right? Um, take myocarditis, for example. You know, there is a risk of myocarditis from the mRNA vaccines. I don't know how many cases you've seen. I've seen a handful. When I was in the military, you know, we, our, our patient population tends to skew, at least on the active duty side, a little young and largely male, right? Which is the risk group at greatest risk for Pfizer or Moderna-induced myocarditis. This is a relatively mild thing. We actually used to see this all the time with smallpox vaccines in the military. You'd have people would come in with some chest pain, some EKG changes, maybe a troponin leak, maybe not. They'd be in house for a couple of days, get some NSAIDs, recover, go home. Relatively mild entity. Compare this to myocarditis due to COVID, which is like myocarditis due to flu, right? You know, in, where you're talking impellas and vasopressors and you know, these people are sick, sick, sick. Um, well, the risk of getting any myocarditis due to COVID is 16 times greater than the risk of getting any myocarditis due to a vaccine, right? So you got to decide, setting aside issues of severity, are you 16 times more likely to get COVID? Or like, is your odds of getting COVID one in 16 or less? Well, I would posit to you that it's probably quite a bit higher than that, um, especially if you're unvaccinated. So so when people are looking at risk, they see just the risk of myocarditis due to the vaccine, a relatively, a very rare and relatively mild entity, setting aside the dramatically higher and much more severe risk of myocarditis due to the virus itself. And getting people to figure out the, the risk profile, it, it takes time, it takes education, it takes patience, but it's hard. And, uh, and, and I admit, like, I, I don't know how to build rockets. When a rocket blows up, I think, oh, that's terrible. Someone should have done something about that. But if someone knows how to build rockets, explains to me why things happen, well, then I hope that I would have the wisdom to listen to them. Excellent point. So let's <laughs> talk about a couple more uh, components of this vaccine disinformation. What yeah. do you tell patients regarding the risks of infertility, erectile dysfunction, risks in pregnancy? I mean, we've all yeah. heard about Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend's balls. So how do you address yeah. that? Well, you know, it's funny about the the infertility one in men. There was a study, I want to say it was out of Israel, looking at sperm counts in in vaccine recipients, and they're actually higher than the control group. So, uh, so I, I have somewhat tongue in cheek, but somewhat seriously told uh, some of my more vaccine, I'll say on the fence, male patients, that if anything, it may improve your fertility, depending on what you want out of life, right? Um, but there is what hard data we have does not reveal it. Similarly. Uh, vaccine safety in pregnancy has been extensively covered by CDC, by the European Medicine Agency, by the UK, by Israel, and I think we're all very confident that it is very safe in pregnancy. Um, uh, as far as erectile dysfunction, I'm afraid I don't have any actual hard evidence. My suspicion is that it does not, but um, I would need to I would need to dig a little deeper to address that specific one. I will say that the data that I'm familiar with is actually that there's a significantly increased risk of erectile dysfunction if you actually get COVID. So oh, yes, that, I, that I absolutely believe. Uh, that I absolutely believe. Yeah. 
So, of course, we all hear from people about these many, many deaths caused by the COVID-19 vaccine. How many deaths have actually been attributed to the COVID-19 vaccine? You know, I think the answer is extremely few. Uh, Norway uh, published a review, uh, Norwegian uh, Public Health Agency published a review in around May of this year. And they looked specifically at very frail, very elderly nursing home patients with very brief lifespans. And what they identified is they thought they might find, have found 10 cases where, where someone's death may have been hastened by vaccination. These are people who were very much at the end of life to begin with. Um, and, and they make a case in it. I'm not totally sure I agree, but I understand where they're coming from that you know vaccination in general and someone in a palliative care setting may not be the the best use of of resources um, both from a system standpoint and from a patient-centered standpoint and i i certainly understand that and even even someone who is much of a a a vaccine absolutist as myself say if you have someone who is on you know living their last days uh, in a nursing facility perhaps foregoing vaccination and that specific individual is not unreasonable right but the the short answer is extremely few right extremely few and 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 you know this and i know this but it becomes hard to explain it to to patients sometimes that you know what do we what do we ever do in medicine but shift probabilities we make an event more likely or less likely we there are very few guarantees uh of outcome um and when you look at the aggregate shifting of probabilities, how many lives saved versus how much morbidity and, you know, barely touching mortality due to any vaccine, um, you know, it's overwhelmingly in one direction, right? Um, I have a patient uh, who I've cared for somewhat, somewhat kind, of, kind of funny in that I, I cared for her in two different contexts. Um, in two different ICUs, but uh, who is quite convinced that she has an autoimmune disease triggered by one of the mRNA vaccines. Um, she does in fact have that autoimmune disease. Um, and she did receive the mRNA vaccine. She is convinced that the one caused the other. I am not convinced. People get autoimmune diseases. This happens. But figuring out from a broad population standpoint, is there, is there a causal relationship? I don't believe there is. I also know I will never convince this otherwise very kind woman otherwise, right? Whether is, is that worth my time to convince her? I listen sympathetically and then move on. Never any battle of correlation versus causation. We've all been there. <laughs> exactly. I also see people discussing the extensive side effects of the vaccines that's thoroughly documented in VAERS. So what do you yeah. say about the usefulness of the information in VAERS and how to interpret yeah. it? Well, you know, VARES, you know, VARES is, is a passive surveillance system, right? So it only detects things when they are reported. Fortunately, we do have a couple of good methods for getting a handle on the actual rates. One is CDC's vSafe system, which is a, I think most of us, I'm not, I'm actually not totally sure if they're still using this, but early in the pan, in the rollout of the vaccines, uh, you would get a text every few days asking you how you feeling, and then you would report any side effects. Um, 
And so that was actively reaching out. Now, of course, we also have the data reported on side effects from the phase three trials and from after after marketing um, uh, surveillance. Uh, I think a, a skeptic could say that, of course, the drug companies are going to downplay the side effects. I, that is not my experience. I participated in the AstraZeneca phase three trial and I can tell you that the when that got published in the New England Journal, what's published is what we saw. Um, but in terms of what I tell people about the side effects, I mean, you got to be straight up with them, right? I mean, there is a there is a fair chance you're going to feel lousy the next day, possibly even the day after that. But the day after that, you should be fine. And my impression, just from my own practice, is that the shing uh, the shingles vaccine, the current shingles vaccine, the Shingrix, the recombinant one. Um, you know, more reliably lays people flat, you know, for, for a couple few days after they, after they get it. And, and when that vaccine came out, people were lining up around the door for it and continue to actively seek it. And I've used that as a discussion point when I've talked to my patients who need COVID vaccination or afraid of the side effects. I asked them, well, how did the shingles vaccine go for it? And they said, oh, you know, kind of rough the next day. And then I was fine. I'm like, yeah, this is the same. I was lucky. I never had any side effects from any of my two doses of Pfizer or my booster, um, nor did my wife, nor did our daughter. One of my sons had some side effects. I suspect he may have been milking a little bit, but that's fine. Um, but he was enthusiastic to get it and he was enthusiastic to get his other doses. So, but we do have to warn people. Um, there was a, a nurse researcher at UCSF, I believe, who wrote a very nice piece in JAMA Internal Medicine about this. And I, I'm embarrassed that I'm forgetting her name now that I say it, but it was a wonderful piece where she talked about participating in one of the vaccine trials and one of the early vaccinated people and said, yeah, I was wiped out, but, but that's okay because now I'm protected and we don't do our patients any services by downplaying those side effects, right? I mean, I reassure them, but I don't say, no, no, you're going to be fine. And they're not fine. Now we've, now we've broken trust. Whereas if I brace people for the vaccine, yeah, I mean, don't do it if you have to run a race the next day. Um, you'll be fine after that. Completely and, and agree. Being, and being candid with people about that, it, it reinforces trust and it makes them more likely to listen to you in the future. 100%. So many people have also heard that this mRNA technology is too new and it's not well studied. And how do you address that concern? Oh, yeah. Well, it is new. I mean, they're not wrong about that, but it's not as new as people think. Um, this technology has been in development for many years, it just is that we haven't really needed it up until now. Um, you know, there's two kind of streams in COVID vaccine development that came together uh, to produce what we have now. One is that uh, mRNA vaccine technology, and see nucleic acid-based vaccine technology, has been in development for many years. I have, I have friends who, have, who, have a, who share a patent on a dengue uh, nucleic acid vaccine, for example. So this technology has been in development for a long time. We just never needed it on the scale. Uh, there's a Zika nucleic acid vaccine that probably would have worked. It's just the Zika kind of went away. Um, but that technology has been around for at least a good 20 years. Um, in terms of COVID specifically, the other thing is that when COVID hit, we had not quite 20 years worth of research in developing vaccines against SARS and MERS. And so, which are of course very similar, uh, closely related to COVID, to SARS-CoV-2. And so we weren't starting from zero. 
you know, there are there are there have been mammalian COVID vaccines in not COVID, I'm sorry, mammalian coronavirus vaccines in clinical use for many years. Many of them are for animals. Uh, there's a thing called feline peritonitis virus, for example, and feline infectious peritonitis, which is caused by a coronavirus. And if you own a cat, there's a pretty good chance your cat has received a coronavirus vaccine as a result. Um, and so all of that technology existed. And it was just a matter of integrating it together and getting it through phase one, phase two, phase three. And then, of course, when you talk about the speed that the vaccines were rolled out, well, un unfortunately, during a pandemic, it's very easy to hit phase three study endpoints when you have hundreds of thousands of deaths. Uh, it's unfortunately very easy to prove that. Whereas with, say, again, harkening back to the HPV vaccine, uh, it takes a decade or so to show any evidence of reduction in rates in, say, cervical uh, dysplasia or cervical cancer. So it is a unique feature, but you know the, the Ebola vaccines that are now available, vaccine that is now available, uh, had a similar, a similarly fast rollout because of epidemics in West Africa, epidemics in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and, and such. It is sadly relatively efficient to prove vaccine or disprove vaccine efficacy during a public health emergency. So even in patients who understand the short-term safety of the COVID vaccines, I sometimes still hear, but they haven't been studied for long enough. We don't know the long-term risks. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, they're, they're not wrong. I mean, we, the people who were first, the first recipients of uh, COVID vaccines have been vaccinated for less than two years, right? The first volunteers in the Moderna phase one trial received their vaccines less than two years ago. So that's true. We don't. What I would say is this, that with other vaccines, the late effects are not new toxicities, uh, but they are waning of immunity, right? That's generally the long-term effects of, of any vaccine after a certain period of time. Now, one can posit that years or so later, there may be some late complication of a vaccine that we're not aware of. And while it is very difficult to prove a negative, or to disprove a negative rather, what I would say is that this would make the COVID vaccine unlike every other viral vaccine ever. And um, while I acknowledge that it is a new technology, the human immune system hasn't changed that much. And um, so I, it can be hard to hard to convince a, a very reluctant person to, to accept that, but say that would, if that were the case, that would make COVID vaccines entirely unique. And uh, I don't think they're entirely unique. I think they're great vaccines, but they're not entirely unique. Well, let's knock out a couple more of these bits out there. Uh, hopefully yeah. these are pretty quick yes and no answers. Does the vaccine change your DNA? No. Does it make you magnetic? I hope not. No, it does <laughs> Is not. there a microchip? There is not. Okay. I, I have a, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, I was wondering if you happen to know the pathogenesis or uh, pathology behind, when I got my second dose, my tail glowed for like two days. It did. It did. You know, I, you know, my, my microchip um, did go on the fritz, but you know, it's <laughs> one of the newer ones. Uh, it's, it's bulky. You know, I actually, uh, I, I, we were talking about Twitter earlier. Uh, someone did send me a picture of a tweet that said, uh, 
in retrospect, inserting the microchips into the horse dewormer was a stroke of genius. Uh, I had that on the office, uh, on my my door of my office for, uh, for a little while there because I thought that was funny. I'm not sure all of my colleagues thought it was quite as funny as I did. I find that very humorous. Um, now, we're also starting to see more calling the effectiveness of the vaccine into question. So people say, well, I can still get COVID. I can still spread COVID even if I'm vaccinated. So what's the point in getting the vaccine? What do you say to that? Yeah, well, no, I mean, I, and again, I, I understand this again goes to people's ability to assess risk and, uh, and, and it is not, well, not, well, it is not correct. It's not an invalid question. And I think we do need to answer that. And I, what I ask people is this, um, do you wear a seatbelt? And people will say, hopefully, yes. I say, well, seatbelts don't stop you from having car accidents, yet you still wear a seatbelt. This is the same idea. Um, although unlike seatbelts, this does reduce your risk of getting COVID. So, um, you know, our goals with any vaccine are, I think, kind of three, right? Our goal is one, prevent all cause infection, if we can. Number two, prevent transmission of the pathogen to high-risk people. And then number three, reduce the severity of infection if you are infected. And the COVID vaccine very successfully does all three of those. Does it do them all perfectly with 100% accuracy? No, it does not. In fact, I think the closest I can think of to a vaccine that has essentially 100% lifelong protection against disease is probably the hepatitis A vaccine, uh, a very difficult trick to replicate. Um, but that is essentially, after two doses, lifelong immunity, sterile immunity, as far as we can tell. Um, people who get COVID and, I'm sorry, people who are vaccinated and still have a breakthrough case of COVID, though, the duration of their illness is shorter. Um, they shed less virus for a shorter period of time, so their risk of transmission to others is dramatically decreased. And um, when they do fall ill, they fall less ill. And I'll just anecdotally say I cared for a, a woman uh, in one of my ICUs recently who was very frail, very elderly woman, uh, instant adrenal disease, intubated. She'd been vaccinated, but obviously a number of immunologic strikes against her, her age, her frailty, her kidney disease. And when I first admitted her, I thought, oof, this is not going to go well, um, and following the trajectory of so many of our other elderly patients with COVID. You know, and she was extubated two to three days later, went home right um, a rapid recovery and while I I hesitate to practice by anecdote to to fall guilty of the very thing that I, I critique in others but I think it was an interesting illustration and a, a large group published um, a multi-center study recently looking at the effects of vaccination on people who still develop severe COVID requiring hospitalization and there's pretty clear evidence that even when people get that sick they get better faster their mortality is substantially lower they're more likely to go home. And so even in those breakthrough cases, the risk is reduced. Is risk eliminated? No. But can we eliminate any risk in medicine? No. All we can do is change the odds. And I think the odds are changed in one very specific way. Right. So there are some arguing that vaccinations are driving the virus to mutate into a more contagious and deadly version. So what does the science say about vaccines driving mutations in both COVID and other viruses? Yeah, so, so the short answer is that is, that is not true. Um, I think part of the argument is that it is applying evolutionary pressure, uh, thinking along the lines of, say, an antibiotic, where you have a, 
you know, antibiotic use in, in a hospital or an intensive care unit or in the community, and that drives drug resistance. So I think they're practiced there. I think that is an analysis by analogy. Uh, what we can say is with other comparable viruses, there is no evidence that vaccination is what drives genetic resortment, mutation, development of new strains. Uh, influenza, for example, it's very clear that influenza vaccination is not what drives changes in influenza genetics from year to year. Uh, we've had very successful uh, vaccine campaigns, you know, against a variety of diseases uh, over the course of our history. And, you know, measles is a good example. For example, there's no evidence that the measles vaccine leads to the development of new measles strains. Um, uh, rubella, et cetera, varicella. There's no breakthrough varicella mutations that are leading to these problems. And it's not that herpes viruses don't mutate. They do. If you have ever cared for a patient with CMV, you know very well that that herpes viruses can mutate and acquire drug resistance. Um, so, but on the other hand, what does drive mutations? Well, it's a function of the population, right? If you have a large population of circulating viruses with many opportunities to mutate, then that will happen. And I would argue that the reverse of what these people are asserting is rather the truth, that with greater use of vaccination, we reduce the circulating population of SARS-CoV-2 in our world, thus leading to fewer opportunities to mutate. Um, I realize that's a, a fairly grand argument, but I do think it's consistent with what we understand about, about how viruses spread. So let's say you're talking to a patient and you say, have mm -hmm. you gotten your COVID vaccine yet? And they say no. How do you yeah. open that conversation now so that you can have an honest and productive conversation? Yeah, I mean, the first re reason I ask is, if you don't mind me asking, can you, can you tell me why not? Often the reason is very prosaic. Often the reason is, I was busy and I didn't get around to it. I think, uh, I think that's a thing, any, that's a statement that any practicing physician can sympathize with very readily, right? I, I get it. It seems like now's a good time. It's very easy to do so. And heck, while we're here, we can set it up now if you want, right? Um, for some people, they have concerns. They've heard things from friends. They've heard things from family. They've heard things from internet. I ask them what those things are, and then we review them, and we talk about them. And I, I know, and I always know this is going to take time, right? I always know that this is going to going to affect my, my clinic schedule on a given day. I do a lot of transplant infectious diseases nowadays, and uh, for kidney transplant recipients, I really have to encourage them because it affects their suitability for transplantation. And and so getting them immunized in a timely manner, it becomes very important. And I feel a little bit of pressure, um, not from my system or my colleagues, but personal pressure to make sure that I get them uh, properly vaccinated. Um, some people have beliefs that are very difficult to crack, right? They just flat, up, flat out refuse. Um, and, and that becomes, or they have a, an influential family member, a spouse who is very, who's A, not there for me to speak to, and B, is just vociferously opposed to, to immunization. And, and that, uh, that becomes hard to, to debate a person who isn't there. Um, most of the time when I've been successful in overcoming these has, issues of hesitancy, it's because I have established a relationship with this person Previously, if I'm seeing someone as a consultant um, for the first time, it is unlikely that I'm going to crack the code on that in a single visit. I will sometimes have people come and follow up with me later on 
um, people who I might be able to address over the phone, but arrange some manner of fault so that we can, A, take the time to establish that relationship. Um, because I, I, because I, I, I do think this, I do think the one thing that is going to get us over this hump of hesitancy is individual trust, right? It is not going to be public service announcements. It's not going to be celebrities on social media advocating it. It's going to be you, me, our colleagues, individually taking a, taking advantage, if you will, of the relationships and the trust we build with people over time. And so I try to find a way to build that trust. Uh, I try not to end our visit on the vaccine, right? I try to make sure that we've been, okay, let's, let's talk about something else, something that's maybe higher on your priority list so that we can A, address your needs, but B, also establish trust. Then we'll come back and then I'll try again. Then we'll come back again and I'll try again. Um, I do not want to use brute force to get people to see my way. I, I, I want to persuade. And um, I would say I'm batting about 50-50, right? So I'm, I'm screwing up metaphors. I'm batting about 500 on it's that. Great batting average. Uh, thank you, thank you. I'm, it's okay, it's not bad. Um, but, but it does take time and it does take patience and there isn't a recipe. Um, there isn't a recipe. But I have had a lot of people who I've been able to convince over time of the safety, but that required building credibility with them. I will say people do surprise you on occasion. I saw one patient in, uh, in consult who had not been vaccinated, very much needed to be vaccinated, and was um, uh, whose spouse was very much opposed to vaccination. The spouse wasn't there, but this patient was accompanied by uh, uh, an older woman from her church, and I practice in North Carolina, and I was not sure what direction this was going to go. And uh, the, the person from her church who was accompanying her, when I recommended vaccination, said, yeah, you know, our, our pastor uh, talked about this and very much wants all of us to get vaccinated. And I'm like, yes, listen to her. You like her. You know her. Listen to her. Very wise. But people surprise you, right? And that was, a, I think, a valuable lesson for me to not have preconce you know, preconceived judgments about how different groups are going to respond. And that, that patient, thankfully, was ultimately vaccinated and did well. And that's, maybe that's the lesson, right? It's individual victories, that each one person who we persuade to get vaccinated, that's one fewer person who's at risk. That's one fewer person who's going to get COVID. That's one fewer person who's going to transmit COVID. And, and that's maybe the thing that gets us through our days, right, is knowing that those individual victories, eventually they add up. Well, that seems like a great place to, to close this conversation. So what closing thoughts do you have for our audience that you want them to take away from this discussion? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I, I, this is for the Critical Care Network, of course. And, and uh, you know, I, I think for a lot of us, uh, we've, we've grown, we're getting tired, right? We've grown perhaps a little more weary, perhaps a little more jaded in the last year and a half, two years. And I, I realize there are a lot of experts on wellness and physician resilience and the like who, who have discussed this more, uh, how should I put it, more eloquently than I ever could. But one thing that I, I have found useful in my own work was something that a, a colleague said that to remind, to remind myself that the, the unvaccinated, often willfully unvaccinated patient uh, whom I'm seeing in the emergency department in my ICU, about to put on high flow, about to intubate, 
uh, is in many ways the, the final victim of a campaign of misinformation. And I find that is a useful way to at least help me restore my empathy. And, uh, and similarly, when I see patients in clinic who are in that same position, not in the about to be intubated position, obviously, um, but who are coming from that same angle to, to remind myself that I am, I'm not trying to just convince someone, I am trying to undo an injustice and um, an injustice inflicted upon these people. And, and I hope that I succeed more often than I fail, but even one success is a success. I love it. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. Maves for sharing his expertise and passion and time with us today. And a big thank you to all of you healthcare providers out there listening to this and working to save as many lives as possible with vaccination. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.